You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Compliance is hard, but finding the answers doesn't need to be. Join Jeff Hedges and his staff on the Pharmacy Compliance Guide as they help you and your pharmacy staff navigate through some of the complexities to help you stay stress-free and in compliance. The Pharmacy Compliance Guide is a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. All right. Hello there, Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thank you so much for tuning in today to another installment of the Pharmacy Compliance Guide. I'm Becky, and I'll be your host today as we navigate another fun area of the world of complexities with compliance in the realm of pharmacy. Today, I'm actually joined by Greg Wozniak. And Greg, I'm so glad that you were able to tune in today. Thanks, Becky. I look forward to uh, sharing uh, with you and the audience uh, more about the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, or it's often known as uh, track and trace, especially for retail pharmacies and healthcare organizations. Wonderful. Now, Greg, you are joining us today. You're also here in the fabulous Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and your company is Excellus Health Solutions. Can you give us a little bit of background on who you are and what your company does for independent pharmacies? Sure. So, uh, Excellus Health Solutions, or Excellus as as, uh, we refer to ourselves, was founded in 2010. We are in the Commonwealth of uh, Pennsylvania, based in New Hope, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Uh, We're the leading organization in the pharmaceutical supply chain, which specifically focusing on the Drug Supply Chain Security Act regulations. So how independent pharmacies can uh, ensure compliance with the regulations as well as derive business value. Uh, We believe this is an exciting opportunity to not only improve patient safety, but also uh, improve business value to independent pharmacies and their patients uh, specifically as well. So we are an advisory firm uh, and we help independent pharmacies and other organizations literally around the world, although we're based in Pennsylvania, these type of regulations are uh, spanning the globe uh, to protect people from fraudulent, illegitimate products that often show up in our supply chain. And so really, it's a patient safety initiative. So that's why we like it. We truly believe uh, with our independent pharmacy partners that uh, we are making a difference in the lives of our patients and like to collaborate with them as well. Now, today, as you mentioned, we're going to be discussing the Drug Supply Chain Security Act also known as DSCSA, uh, and you mentioned track and trace. So it's gone by a couple of different names. Can you tell us why this specific item, DSCSA is what I'm going to abbreviate it as on this podcast, why it's so important to retail pharmacies and their customers? It really started in the early 2000s. What really this is about is a worldwide problem in the United States where there's been fraudulent, illegitimate product, particularly prescription products, introduced into the pharmacy supply chain and dispensed to patients. And it's an opportunity to protect the patients from these illegitimate products that could cause harm to them. Back in 2013, President Obama signed the Drug Quality and Security Act, EQSA, and that's why you're going to learn why many people call this track and trace. And DSCSA is a sub of that regulation, which focuses on prescription drugs. 
And he signed that on November 27th of 2013. And so all the regulations compliance dates usually revolve around November. It gave the United States 10 years to become fully compliant with the regulations. And so that's the whole idea behind it. For the independent pharmacy, and particularly with shortages, oftentimes they have a primary wholesaler that's providing them the drug, but then doing shortages, they may go to a secondary wholesaler. And oftentimes it's that secondary supplier of drugs is where, if you will, black market or illegitimate drugs get introduced in the supply chain. And that's what creates the safety concerns. So oftentimes when we speak to independent pharmacists, that often becomes one of their areas of concern. At the same time, they're striving to meet the needs of their uh, patients. And so they're, they're working hard to find those shortage products. And oftentimes that's where it gets introduced into the supply chain. So it's really a patient safety initiative. It was made a national standard because in the early 2000s, several states, most notably uh, California, so some of your listeners may know the pedigree law, was going to be introduced there. And then there was a, a national understanding that really if we're going to do this, it's best to do this as a national standard versus a state-by-state -state standard. And that's what was the impetus behind the law itself. You already mentioned back in 2013 was really when this started to come into everybody's uh, wheelhouse of, of knowing that this was going to happen because of that piece of legislation. But they gave us 10 years to take care of that. So from 2013 all the way up to 2023, hopefully our listeners have already been exposed to this and are aware of those dates. Can you share some of the, the key dates that pharmacies already had to have in place? You mentioned November is always a key month uh, every year. Can you mention some of the key dates that have happened in the past and some more of these key dates that will even be happening in the future that we should be preparing for? Sure. So a couple of thoughts to think about with this. What the United States decided to do, and this is different than other countries, is to start usually with the regulations with the pharmaceutical manufacturers first. And you can think about it logically, getting the products where they're made at to comply to the law. And then they move to the wholesaler distributors, repackagers, and then they move to independent retail pharmacies and healthcare organizations. Those independent retail pharmacies and healthcare organizations are often talked to in the law as the term dispensers. So if you hear me talk about manufacturers, wholesalers, and dispensers, the law refers to new retail pharmacies and healthcare organizations as dispensers. So the way the law is designed, it starts with the manufacturers, they become compliant, and then it moves to the wholesalers, and then it moves to dispensers or the retail pharmacies. So one of the challenges for the dispensers and retail pharmacies have been and it's only recent years, even though this was signed back in 2013, it's only been recent years, and I would say literally the last year, that most people are becoming aware of the regulations and starting to realize that there were compliance regulations that they needed already to be complied with, and there's a big one coming in November of 2020. So let me go through for, for independent retail pharmacy. Back in 2015, you had to put in regular uh, processes to comply with a regulation called authorized trading partners. And the idea behind that was who you're buying from, verifying that they are truly authorized to sell you the product. So the wholesaler needs to verify that the manufacturer is selling them the product is truly authorized, which usually means licensed in the state that they're shipping from or making the product and, and licensed with the federal government. 
you have to keep those records, and that's intended to block someone from selling product illegitimately. So that was a 2015 regulation. You also, back in 2015, if you identified suspect product, so something that didn't seem right, you needed to quarantine it, and there's explicit procedures for a retail pharmacy to do is how they investigate that, and then reporting requirements. They would need to report to the FDA, as well as to the wholesaler or manufacturer they received the drug from. So that was really 2015. Then, then came 2016, and that's where manufacturer or wholesaler should be shipping your products to you, but also sending three pieces of information related to the transaction. The history, where's the product been made at, who was shipped to, so say a wholesaler, and, and then it, now it's coming to you. A statement that the person selling you the product attests that they received it directly from another wholesaler and didn't go anywhere else. And then the third is what's called the inf transaction information all the information about the product, where it was made, the expiration date, uh, et cetera, the product name. There's 10 elements of that. So those three things are called P3, uh, transaction history, transaction information, and transaction statement, and that's referred to T3 in the industry. So what needs to happen starting 2016 is that health, uh, retail pharmacies and other dispensers needed to check that information before they accepted the product. So that way they're knowing that the product is legitimate. So it's almost like a chain of custody. And that's where the term often comes track and trace. We know where the product came from and we're tracking that and we're tracing it uh, moving forward. So that's really where the independent pharmacies need to be today. What's coming in 2020, and many of the people on the podcast will start to see these 2D data matrices showing up on your saleable units of prescription drugs. Remember, this is related to prescription drugs, not over-the-counter. And that 2D data matrix has four readable lines to it, and that includes the expiration date, the lot number, what's called a global trade item number, or GTIN, G-T-I-N as an acronym, embedded in that GTIN is the NDC. So the national drug code for each product is embedded in that. And then the last thing, which is very unique, is a serial number. Every saleable unit, very similar to your and my social security number, will have a unique serialized number unique to that saleable unit that the manufacturer and or repackager will assign to that number so you can specifically trace that drug to know it came from a legitimate source. And those four indicators are what they would call the product identifier and must be on all packaging. So in November of 2018, any product manufactured in the United States and packaged needed to have those on that. And then this November, every wholesaler that ships those products to you must have those uh, on those as well, unless they're grandfathered because they were made before the date. And then in November of 2020, a independent pharmacy as well as healthcare organizations, when they receive the product, will have to ensure that that product identifier and the four elements are on the product. And that's why November 2020 becomes really, really important to independent pharmacies. Thanks so much for sharing that. I was actually taking copious notes as you were going through that, and it definitely seems like there's been a lot of things that have happened in the past. There's a couple of things that are going to be happening in the future. I think a lot of people would like to know 
what are the implications of this and what type of regulatory enforcement measures could uh, a pharmacy in particular see in the future? Sure, great question. So I would say three points. The implications are very important to the a retail pharmacy because what you're going to have to do is start to change your processes. And uh, if you think about it, when you receive a product, even before you do that, when you order a product, you have to authorize, make sure that training partner is in good standing at the time. And there's been cases where even some of the big names have shipped something and then the FDA or another governmental body has said that they fall, fell out of compliance and they no longer allow that uh, site to be compliant until they view it as being in good standing until they fix it. So oftentimes when I talk to people, they'll say, well, that's just for the gray market. And I'll say that is intended for the gray market, but it also is intended in case there's been a problem somewhere else. And that has happened. So the first thing they're going to have to do is before they order, order product, know who they're ordering from and checking those state licenses and the FDA to ensure they're in good standing. The second thing is when you receive your T3 information, it should be electronic, although many of the wholesalers are not there yet and manufacturers, particularly for direct and drop shipments. You have to review that T3 information before you accept the product. So that changes your receiving process. So your ordering is changing and your receiving process is. And if that information is not there, you have to set it aside and investigate it, the product itself. And then the next step is then when serialization comes. So when serialization comes in your receiving process, so by November of 2020, and those 2D data matrices that you're starting to see on product, is going to have those four product identifiers, the expiration date, the lot number, the global trade item number, or GETIN, which includes the NDC that we're all used to today, and then that unique serial number, you're going to have to ensure that that product has all four elements on that. Which, which means you're going to have to scan that product. And a lot of independent pharmacies don't scan upon receipt. So they're going to have to scan that product and then put suspect product processes in place in case those indicators are not there. At the same time, you have to make sure the T3 information is there as well. So your receiving processes will have to change dramatically as well. And then your return processes uh, have to change as well. So one of the biggest changes coming and the wholesalers are working on right now, any, any saleable returns that you make, you'll have to provide information back to the wholesaler to show that you bought it from them so they can issue that saleable return uh, credit to that pharmacy. So that really starts to get into business uh, aspects of the pharmacy as well. So that's why everyone says November of 2020 is going to be the big, biggest change for retail pharmacies uh, moving forward. Your second question was, who has enforcement responsibility? The FDA has enforcement responsibility, usually, and there's been a couple of cases already, where there's been a uh, illegitimate drug identified. They'll look at and trace that drug throughout the pharmaceutical supply chain and check to see how people were following the drug. Did they authorize the training partner? Did they verify the T3 was all there? And now when serialization comes, did they confirm that as well? So the FDA has the enforcement authority. Now, have there been any enforcement actions to date? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the first one occurred last year, around July, with one of the big three wholesalers. And it was very interesting. It originated with a few retail pharmacies. Those pharmacies 
had put processes in, caught similar drugs from the same uh, wholesaler that had been tampered with. With that tampering, the retail pharmacies did a great job. They notified the FDA, so they were following the requirements. They notified the wholesaler. They also quarantined the suspect product and started to investigate it. And they determined that it was illegitimate, and then they notified the FDA and the, and the wholesaler. So they did a great job. What the FDA then did is investigated the origins of that and track and traced it all the way through to the retail pharmacies. And unfortunately, the wholesaler, which is one of the big three, did not, uh, could not show that they had completed all the requirements of the FCSA. And then um, this February of 2019, so this occurred back in early 2018, in 2019, the FDA issued a letter of warning to that wholesaler that they needed to fix the issues. And if they didn't fix the issues, there was a the potential they could shut them down until those issues were fixed. So that became the first, and candidly, like any law, I think people always say, well, is this really going to be enforced? And that was the first one. So this year has been, I think, for dispensers, so retail pharmacies and healthcare organizations, recognizing that they will start to do that and really focus on this. The other big event that occurred is the Office of Inspector General. We hear a lot about the OIG these days. And they did two reports on the law and issued those reports in 2018 basically focused on retail pharmacies compliance and healthcare organizations. So that really got everybody's attention in the retail pharmacy world because the Office of Inspector General was looking at that and identified issues and primarily that the retail pharmacies and healthcare organizations were very underinformed about the regulations, had not started to make the changes, and also clarified some confusion about the regulations and how it should be implemented. They gave their findings to the FDA. The FDA concurred on those, and then the two reports were published with the OIG. Those OIG reports also started to get everybody's attention as well, that the government was very interested in this, felt it was a necessary uh, regulations to protect patients, and also to take care of some fraudulent players in the market that were driving up healthcare costs as well. So those two actions, the enforcement of one of the big three, as well as the OIG reports, really have led to the industry to uh, take more notice of the regulations and has really caused the independent pharmacies to start to implement the regulations. This is a little bit of an odd question for you. Now, if you had a crystal ball and could look into the future and be able to speculate or forecast, what type of cautionary tales could you tell them as far as enforcement? Obviously, we know they're already starting to look at it. We've got these dates in place. It's going to be happening. Do you think this is going to be something more like a fine? Do you think they're going to start with that written warning like they did for that wholesaler? How severe do you think the enforcement measures are going to be when it comes to a retail pharmacy? Um, great question, and I wish I had a more direct answer for you. I think uh, the way the law is written, it doesn't specifically state what's going to happen, but we do see and expect fines and or warning letters as well as basically shutting somebody down. We also recognize that many of the state boards of pharmacies are starting to take a look at this as well, and so they have implications at the state level. We believe, based on the magnitude of the issues, so for example, if deaths occurred because of something like this, obviously that's going to have the highest concern. And then also, where an organization's at, 
and responsible for that, that we think the commencement uh, penalties will be associated with that as well. We do not see the FDA just doing random audit just because of staffing concerns, and that's been discussed publicly. But we do see other accrediting organizations starting to put this in their accreditation standards, particularly for specialty pharmacies, as well as the State Board of Pharmacies. We just gave a presentation to one of the state's boards about this to educate them as well. So I think you'll see more and more. But like anything in life, it's usually when an event occurs that gets everybody's attention and, and focus. So the key thing, I think, that when we work with independent pharmacies, this is a good thing. This is something about patient care and protecting your patients, which, again, pharmacists are, are the top, if not uh, number one, number two, trusted profession. And especially community pharmacies really want to be attached to their community. So this is a patient safety initiative. But there's also business value for them as well. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned a couple of phrases that I'd like to revisit to just help clarify a few items. So you mentioned authorized trading partner. Can you can you recap again what an authorized trading partner is? Sure. And again, how I always encourage people to think about how you order and receive products and dispense them is the key with the law. So when you are purchasing from a wholesaler or purchasing from another manufacturer, uh, our distributor, before you purchase that drug, you should have checked to make sure they're in good standing with the state that you're in and the state that they're shipping to you from. So you could have a big wholesaler that might have different distribution centers. You need to understand which distribution center is shipping the drugs to you and have a method in your pharmacy to check that. A lot of organizations have started to do that manually and found that time consuming. And so technology companies have started to help mine the data for them and alert them when something changes. Or if you're in short supply, there are technology groups that we work with that allow you to Google it and give you the information that you need, not through Google, but through their websites. But you have to check that. And usually you're checking it with the states and you're also checking it with the the federal government uh, levels. So if they're in compliance, then you know it's a first screening mechanism that you're buying from a reputable supplier of drugs to you. We do have quite a few pharmacies who are acquiring other locations right now. Whenever a a owner is retiring or uh, maybe they're passing their pharmacy from one generation of pharmacists to another generation of pharmacists, can you share with us how transferring inventory from one owner to another in regards to to this regulation is going to change moving forward? Uh, That's a great question, Becky. And I think especially there's so much movement today in the marketplace, right? So that's very common. So one of the things we recommend is that as part of their due diligence in purchasing that pharmacy, that there's a quick assessment that gets done. Assess other processes for compliance with the DSCSA. And we often go in and help look at that for them because what you don't want to do is inherit risk and that is what you're trying to avoid in that due diligence process. So oftentimes you can look at how, what their authorized trading partner verification process is. You can look at their suspect product, their quarantine, their investigation processes and how they handle recalls. Also look at how they handle the T3 information we talked about, that transaction history information and statement. And then lastly, you really look at how they're verifying the T3 information. So that will help you understand how tight their policies are, how their processes are put in place in alliance with this, which will give you a good measure of what their inventory looks like. 
Um, the second way, if you start to identify issues, then you start to dig a little bit deeper into those issues to, to check the inventory. And in some cases, you may not purchase the inventory uh, because you're just not comfortable with it and exclude that from the transaction. Well, that's very good information to know. And I know that's something we help a lot of our clients with on a regular basis is changing around inventories whenever new owners are coming in. So that's definitely great to, to be able to work into brokerage conversations. Now, I want to loop over to the 2D data matrix that you had mentioned earlier that's going to be on the prescription product. Now, is that serialization? It is. So the term serialization really comes from that unique serial number I was mentioning, Becky, that every product, so just think about it like your social security number, literally every saleable unit, prescription drug saleable unit, is going to have a unique serial number that the manufacturer is assigning to that product. So that allows you to track it all the way through the supply chain up until the point you dispense it. And then you're going to have a lot number on there. And then you're going to have an expiration date, which is great. And then you have this global trade item number. So let's go into that. You have the national drug code that we're used to is going to be embedded in that string of numbers. But you also want to have information about the product. What was its packaging? Where did it origin from? And the neat thing about all of this, it's embedded. All that data is embedded in that square 2D data matrix that you're starting to see now on product. Because remember, in November of 2018, any products packaged by manufacturers or repackagers had to have that on it. So really, that's going to become, if you will, the gold standard to verifying these products. So that provides not only safety issues when in 2020, so November 27th of 2020, which hard to believe is only about 12 months away, you're going to have to check that upon receipt to ensure that those product identifiers are on there and they're in good standing. And if they're not, you're going to have to put that away before you accept that product moving forward. So from a business perspective, there's a lot of information here for you. Expirations will be easier to track, so which will help you bring down your costs. Recalls will be easier because you'll be picking up that lot number. And if you tie it into your retail systems, you'll be able to track that information for recall where the product is at. Returns, it's going to be very important to have that information because your wholesaler that you bought it from or other supplier can only take back product that they sold to you. In order to get your credit for saleable returns, you're going to have to have to look at that as well. So we see an opportunity to protect patient safety, ensure you're compliant, but also use it for business value and hopefully reduce your cost and also notify your patients more specifically when recalls do occur. Earlier, we were talking about some of the enforcements that have already happened, and you said it was actually at the retail pharmacy level that they found some suspect products and then went into a quarantine process. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, I'm a retail pharmacy, I've, I've received my order, I'm in the process of checking it in, and now I've got this suspect product. Can you give a little bit more detail what I should be doing? Sure. So a couple different ways, right? So we've, we've purchased from somebody who's authorized, right? So we have that authorized trading partner. We know they're in good standing, so that makes us feel good. The second part is that T3 information. That should be sent ideally electronically to you now because that's what the law says. And then your receiving team should verify for each of the products that that information is fully completed. If for some reason that information is not fully there, that's your first line where you're going to pull that product, not accept it, 
and do an investigation. Oftentimes that goes back to the supplier you purchased it from and say, hey, I'm missing this information and they can send it to you and then you're good and you can put it back into your supply. Or for some reason they can't get that information. What we advise clients then is to return that back to the supplier uh, to give that to them. The other issue, and this gets specifically to the case we discussed earlier, in that case, they received product that had been tampered with and the staff was alert uh, kudos to them. When they were receiving it, they said something didn't look right. So they pulled it aside. And sure enough, it turned out after investigation that somebody had tampered with the product. What they did there is they protected the patient by just pulling it out and, and quarantining it to make sure until an investigation was done. They have to notify the FDA within a certain time requirement. And they also have to notify who they received it from. Once they complete their investigation, if it is confirmed as illegitimate, they have to notify the FDA and they also have to notify a wholesaler. And then based on uh, the discussions, they'll determine how it gets returned. One thing that your audience needs to remember, the FDA is going to require you at a minimum to store six years of your transaction history information and statements, the T3. And if it is a product that's being investigated in this case, you have to uh, hold it in files up until 12 years. So those investigations may take a long time. So storage of this information, having it accessible is, is very uh, important. And then if the FDA comes to investigate it, you have a certain amount of time to turn all the information they ask you for over. It's usually 48 hours to do that. So there's other requirements there as well. And that's where we think the FDA will come in and start to talk to the retail chain, talk to the wholesalers, may go back to the manufacturers and really track and trace that all the way back to its origins to find out where the tampering had occurred. Did I answer your okay. question? Oh, it does. I'm always interested whenever there's record retention. That's something we always like to share with our clients. Some items you have to stay for three years, sometimes it's five, sometimes it's 10. So this is good to know now that we have six years of retention of the T3s, but we also have 12 years of retention needed for any of those product investigations. So that's great information to have. What happens oftentimes is the wholesaler supplier says, hey, we'll hold that information for you, okay, which is they can. Oftentimes, we'll advise uh, our clients to keep it themselves because you may change wholesalers. Uh, things may get bought. Something may get bought over time by somebody else, a merger, a consolidation, and those records may not be there. And the, it's the independent retail pharmacy as the dispenser in the law that has the obligation to produce that information. Now, you can use it with your wholesaler, but it, it, if you're going to use them, you really should have guidelines put in place in your contracts for that or if you have other suppliers as well, because if ideally you can hold on to that information now that it's becoming electronic, it's a little bit easier to manage. And there's different systems out there today that we often advise people on. That way you have it when you need it. And then that reduces some of the burden that you're going to have to produce when, when an event occurs. That's a wonderful suggestion. I very much appreciate that. So we've heard some stories about PBMs out there that are asking for product transaction information before reimbursing pharmacies. Can you explain a little bit about why this is happening? 
No, this is that's a great question, and it's really an interesting trend. I started first hearing about it myself when I was giving some talks around the country, and, uh, and this was actually a group of independent pharmacists. And before the talk, did presentations for two groups at a conference, uh, two separate groups, about 100 each. And I asked them, even before the conference, uh, my presentation started, I said, what would be a good topic that you left today knowing that we covered? And they said, we'd like to know about why the PBMs are asking us for the transaction, the T3 information before they pay us. And it's specifically, Becky, around, it seems to be specialty or those high cost products. And I'll give you an example. One of the independent pharmacists has a large HIV population that they care for. And it was those costly drugs. I think it was a close to a $6,000 drug that they had dispensed appropriately to the patient. But when it came back to reimbursement, the PBM asked them to produce the T3 information. And I think it really is just another extension of what a PBM is trying to ensure that a legitimate product is being paid, uh, is administered and dispensed to patients versus illegitimate products. So we think this is another extension of the law that we will see used in other areas. If you look at some of the accreditation organizations for specialty, again, high cost, limited supply drugs, they're asking questions of how you're verifying, not specifically about the DSCSA regulations, but inherent in those guidelines, what's your verification processes to ensure the drugs you're purchasing and the dispensing are legitimate. So again, we think it's a good thing. It does create some financial challenges to the retail pharmacy and other health systems. In this one case, and this is not to be disparaging about the wholesaler, but they went back to their wholesaler to ask for the T3 information and the wholesaler could not find it for them. As the lady who's the owner of the pharmacy said, thank God I like to retain everything. And I went back through my documents, paper, and found it and was able to give that information to the PBM. So again, another reason why we encourage people to keep their T3 for themselves, because not only is it going to be compliance reasons, we believe this is going to tie into reimbursement, particularly for specialty or shortage type drugs. And we also believe this is going to grow increasingly at the accreditation level, particularly for specialty, but also at the state board of pharmacy level as this becomes more widely adopted. Well, I, I know our pharmacies have gotten very good at document retention and organization, but this is definitely going to impact a lot of workflow than our pharmacies that are maybe utilizing some of their staff that aren't pharmacists for documenting and receiving their shipments. Can you share with us a couple other workflow issues that pharmacies should probably be aware of moving forward? I would say next to the compliance, this is the next question we always get. Because with any regulation, and many believe we're overly regulated today, and it creates administrative burdens and, and takes us away from direct patient care, we encourage our clients to adopt this. Because of that 2D data matrix, and that's why I get so excited about this opportunity, you can start to automate a lot of your information. So if you think about today, I like to use the example, if you like to think about Amazon or FedEx, today we could order something from one of those two, get a delivery to our house and check it throughout the, its journey to our home and literally almost know when it's going to arrive, say 2 p.m. today, and I can get home at 1.55 and be there to catch it. 
That's how good track and trace has been for other industries. This is the same opportunity and leveraging the power of that 2D data matrix and other technologies. And often cases when we work with our clients, they've already purchased a retail pharmacy management system, but they may not be using aspects of it. So we work with them to try to change their workflows, plan those out, and streamline and automate some of those steps. And again, like the whole world today is changing, that 2D data matrix and electronic T3 gives you the opportunity to reduce some of the manual processes, tighten up on your supply chain, identify where there are discrepancies, and hopefully save costs, protect your patients, and have an opportunity to do better expiration management and recall management as well. So it's always about three things. It's about your ordering, about your receiving, your put-away process, and then your suspect and return processes. Um, those are the areas that need to change, and we, we really recommend that you plan that, anticipating all the changes, and then you build upon each of the uh, compliance dates so that you have a more streamlined system that can hopefully be an advantage to your pharmacy business and doesn't create more burden to you and you're protecting your patients. Thank you. Now, we've gone over quite a bit of information about the regulations, when it started, some other dates that we need to be aware of, the enforcement actions, things pharmacies should really start looking at and adjusting their workflow. Next up is solutions. You mentioned uh, it's a great idea to start automating your information, but what solutions do you see out there or possibly do you have for retail pharmacies to help simplify this entire process? So the first thing I think is understanding the regulations before you start doing anything. Because I will tell you, what we've learned is like with any laws, it's not clearly defined how it's going to be implemented. And that's intentional. It gives flexibility, but also it also can create some frustration. So the good news has been we're now in our sixth year of the regulations. So a lot has been discussed. The FDA, and particularly that OIG report, really clarified some of this, particularly for retail pharmacies, some of the expectations. So the first thing I would encourage is work with someone that really understands the regulations and what the business implications are there for you. Because there's examples of people who bought something and they're still not compliant, and they, and they assumed they were, and then they found out that they weren't. The second thing is to really map out your workflows. Look at what you're doing today. What investments have you made already? So if it's a retail pharmacy system, if it's a scanning solution, evaluate those. Does a scanning solution do linear or does it do 2D data matrix? If it doesn't do 2D data matrix, you're going to have to make an adjustment there. Thirdly, then evaluate, once you know your strategy, what you need, and that's where you start to evaluate technologies. So there's a lot of technologies out there based upon what you have. We work with all the technology companies, so we're a good source of understanding which ones will work in your particular situation. And that can range from authorized trading partners to checking the T3 information for you automatically and storing it for you electronically to verifying the serialization uh, when it comes next year, particularly with your scanner and capturing that data and storing that data, connecting that data into your retail system so that you can leverage the expiration lot number for inventory management as well as 
recalls and returns. And then the last thing what we've developed is what we find for the independent pharmacists because it's there's so much time that they want to focus on their patients. They don't have a lot of time to put this all together. We've come up with a, with a total package that you can uh, have all the technologies that you need plus receive guidance to ensure you are compliant not only today but as the regulations grow. You can do an ad hoc, almost like an a la carte approach. You can also do a turnkey approach that we offer that includes everything from authorized trading partners through the scanning, through the technology that you need to store the information, T3 and serialization. So really, it, it fits the gamut. But the first thing is to assess yourself, understand the regulations, what's going to impact your operations, develop a strategy to meet not only today's in, in effect regulations, but tomorrow's. And 2020 is the next stage. And then there's another regulation in 2023 so that you have a plan and a foundation to build off of. Wonderful. Thank you for that. I always say do what you do best and contract the rest. So it's nice to have those solutions for us. You're allowed to use that if you'd like to. Uh, <laughs> but I definitely will. Nice to... I think that's best because, yeah. you know, the nice thing about yeah. the independent pharmacists, their focus is on their community and their patients. And that's where they want to spend their time and more time and effort. And that's really been the hallmark of independent pharmacy is that individual consultation with their patients. And taking that away from administrative things are not the best use of their time nor their patients' time. Well, Greg, I want to say thank you so much for sharing all of this great information with us and all the listeners here at the Pharmacy Podcast Network, specifically the Pharmacy Compliance Guide. Um, This information is going to be super helpful for a lot of our pharmacies as they look back to make sure that they have some of these past regulations in place. And then also when they're looking ahead for 2020 and 2023's regulatory deadlines that they're going to be working towards. So, Greg, thank you so very much for joining us today. And folks that are listening, I will have a transcript of today's podcast with the Drug Supply Chain Security Act, known as DSCSA, available. So you are more than welcome to hop over to our website, rjhedges.com. Go to our blog section if you'd like transcript of this or you'd like to share it with a friend. There'll be some additional information there as well. So from all of us here at the Pharmacy Compliance Guide, thank you very much for tuning tuning in today. Safe travels wherever you may be heading. And if ever you need help navigating those waters with regulatory compliance, we are here at RJ Hedges and Associates to help you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Pharmacy Compliance Guide, sponsored by RJ Hedges and Associates. Be sure to search the entire library of podcasts, helping you stay informed on the latest pharmacy compliance issues by visiting pharmacycomplianceguide.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.